It's time for the show that scours the globe for news that interests you. We've scoured a few other planets, too. Didn't find much. Coming to you almost live from their command center just beneath the Earth's crust, here's Jeremy Bray and Wesley Faulkner with Global Geek News. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Geek News Podcast. This is episode number 73 of the Global Geek News Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, alongside my co-host, Wesley Faulkner. How's it going, Wesley? Things are going great. Uh, a little busy this week. Uh, uh, in the middle of the semester of school, and uh, of course, I'm still trying to get my company off the ground, so uh, a lot of meetings, uh, and of course, I'm still working full-time, so very, very busy. Yeah, I'm sure. Any new details that you're willing to reveal about your company? Actually, I've been trying to uh, solidify a web form to to uh, send out for people to sign up to the newsletter, um, but uh, not much more information now. Um, it's it's kind of a, a concept that's like a paperclip. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to explain, but simple once you see it. <laughs> um, so. Uh, trying to make sure what the best way to present it because, you know, first impressions and all. Yeah, I can't wait to check it out. Let me know when you get the email newsletter thing figured out, and I'll definitely be signing up to keep up to date on stuff. But all right, great. Also on the line, we have a special guest, a fellow Microsoft student insider, Mr. Tom Zeekman. How's it going, Tom? Good, how are you doing? Oh, doing all right. Heard you got to have an exciting week last week. Yeah, I was over in uh, Warsaw, Poland, attending the worldwide finals of the 2010 Microsoft Imagine Cup. Got to see uh, 400 of the top technology students from 69-plus uh, countries competing for uh, $25,000 in five or six different categories. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I watched the um, awards ceremony for it. That's all the real coverage I've gotten to see out of it for the most part. I'm kind of curious how how did the what was the judging criteria like for all the different kinds of projects? Well, it's, it's actually kind of interesting the way that uh, the way that judging works. So everybody, um, we all got into town um, on Saturday. And then, so we had we had opening ceremonies and stuff kind of got kicked off. And then immediately on Sunday, um, throughout Sunday, there were briefings with um, for different categories. So there was software design, embedded development, game design, and all of the students competing in those categories uh, were shuffled off into briefings where they were informed of uh, what the rules were going to be for their presentations, how long they'd have to present. Um, they were given sheets that had their briefing room information, had kind of a list of the criteria. Um, they weren't told who their judges were going to be. They only were introduced to the captains. And the captains were really there more to kind of lead the judging and be the captain of the judging teams. Um, and so then after their briefings, 
Um, they were given they were given time to get together with their teams, make sure they had you know any all of the software they needed, any adapters, um, made sure that you know their projects were working, and then they were kind of shuffled off into briefing rooms at uh, a couple different hotels, as well as um, the Palace of Culture. And basically, the way that the judging worked is the teams would go in. They'd sit, they'd set up their presentation. They would have, uh, they'd have 10 minutes for setup. And immediately after that 10 minutes, if they were still setting up, um, it launched right into their presentation time. So they could, they could still be setting up and, um, the judges would just be sitting there waiting for them to finish. Um, after they finished setting up it, the, the presentation, it was, it was, it was fairly informal. Um, the teams just kind of introduced themselves, introduced themselves. Um, a lot of teams that I saw, they, basically just went through uh, PowerPoint presentations did, and then did some demos. Uh, but after their presentation time, there was, which they were given uh, 30 minutes uh, for that, there was then 15 minutes of Q&A from the judges. So the, and the judges would just kind of, you know, when somebody would have a question, they would just ask the team. And, you know, some of the teams were one or two people. They were or three or four or two. They would just kind of shuffle back and forth and answering the questions. Um, the judges used score sheets. Um, they were there were different categories for different things, kind of rated scale of one to ten. And then after that, the higher scores moved on to the next round. Judging went the same way again. And then there was a final round with the final uh, three teams in each category, where they actually presented to the entire audience of students, Microsoft staff, press at the Warsaw Opera House. And then after those presentations is when the judges decided who was going to be first, second, and third in each category. Hmm. It, it was a whole lot bigger competition than I was certainly expecting, not having heard anything about it before I came a, became a student insider. I wasn't expecting it to be this great big production like I was watching on the stream. I, I was kind of surprised. Was there much of a language barrier at all, considering the fact that everybody was kind of from all over the world? You know, I was I was kind of surprised at there there for some of the teams there was, um, but it, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. I mean, it wasn't like you know we had teams that the judges would be speaking to them in English and they'd be standing there with a blank stare on their face. Um, a lot of times it was just you know the the teams would present. Some of them kind of used broken English, but it wasn't so bad that you couldn't understand them. Um, but when the judges would would be asking questions, there there were there were only probably at most I would say five or six times where I heard a team say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't understand what you're saying. Can you say that a different way? Um, there there wasn't much of a language barrier, and even in, even in talking to the teams myself, you know, they were it was pretty easy to they they could understand what I was saying. I could understand what they were saying. Um, you know, it wasn't it, there wasn't too much of an issue. Well, that's good. I was kind of wondering how that would work. With how many different countries were represented there? Um, there were sixty nine. We had so there were four hundred students from sixty nine countries represented, and there was there was press from all over the world. Um, we were actually the Imagine Cup. I went. I was at my ho- in my hotel room one night and turned on um, the BBC, and there was a story about the Imagine Cup going on. Um, the local Polish TV station TVP um, had did several stories throughout the week, um, so it was, a, it was a, it was a pretty big thing. Hmm. Yeah, it, it seemed to be 
pretty cool. It's something I'd even be cons- interested in participating in in the future. Um, I haven't looked to see if there's a theme for next year's competition, which, which is going to be in New York. But from my understanding, the theme for this year is kind of imagine where a world of technology helps solve the toughest problems is kind of what I heard the theme was for this year. Is that Do you know if that's going to be the case for next year? You know, you know, I haven't heard. Um, they've they they've updated the website with the logo for next year and the winners for this year. Um, I do know that they're um, they're working on all of those details. Um, I haven't heard when they'll be out yet, although that should be fairly soon because I've been asked to um, speak to all of the computer science seniors over at Arizona State. Um, in the last week of August about the Imagine Cup. So I think hopefully we have details by then to share. Hmm. Um, but I, it'll pro- it's pro- my, my guess would be that the overall theme would remain the same because I think it's been the same theme for the last couple years. Um, even this, this year it was, they, it was related to using the United Nations Millennium Development Goals as a guide. Um, they may use those again. They may do something else. But I, I, I wouldn't expect it to, to change too dramatically. Yeah, that, that that's one of the details that I was kind of hoping to get out of the announcement for the 2011 Imagine Cup was kind of what the theme would be, that kind of thing. But I'm guessing they're just not ready to announce that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think we're going to start seeing stuff within the next, you know, next month or so. I mean, just, you know, look, looking at their website, um, you, there's already, there's only 70 days left already to register. So I'm thinking we should start seeing fairly soon, you know, what the, what the theme and everything is going to be. Yeah, I, I would think so. Cause if it was me, I would want to kind of know what the theme is before I would consider registering, but that's just me. But anyway, we've got a full show today. All, all kinds of stories plus our usual tips of the week which those that want to follow along, you're more than welcome to at globalgeeknews.com. Just make sure you look for episode number 73, and you'll find all the show notes there, as well as a number of other links to like our Facebook page where you can like us and whatnot. But anyway, speaking of Microsoft-related things, we'll just jump right into our first story. Apparently, half of all Windows, or nearly half of all Windows 7 installations are 64-bit. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, I think it actually long. would. I think it actually would be higher if a lot of people um, didn't purchase upgrades from their old Vista systems to be upgraded into 64-bit Windows. Uh, I mean, to to go into Windows 7, um, since you can't do a migration from 32-bit Vista to 64-bit Windows 7, I think that's why a lot of people might have stayed on 32-bit versions uh, of Windows 7, and I think that's probably contributed to why the number is actually so low. I think it actually would be higher if they allowed that conversion. Yeah, I think that kind of the whole idea of if you were to jump from 32 to 64, that you'd have to do a complete um, wiping of your hard drive and start all over again scares a lot of people. Me, I like to do that about once every six months anyway. So that, that's something that I enjoy. But yeah, I was kind of surprised. I've, I've got a feeling that the reason that it's not any higher than it is is the fact that for years, 64-bit hasn't had the best press in the world just because of a lot of hardware didn't really support it. There's 
a lot of software that still doesn't support it. There's still not a 64-bit version of Flash, but mm-hmm. there's just been, uh, for years, there's been a lot of companies that, yeah, they've had 64-bit drivers, but they've always been a piece of junk, so in a lot of people's mind, it's still risky to move to 64-bit. Yeah. Well, well even, even though you know, talk about... Um... Uh, you know, there are no 64-bit Flash yet. I mean, that's you know, t- kind of talking about the FUD that that that's fun in you know in one respect, in that you know even on a 64-bit system, you can still use Flash because by default, Internet Internet Explorer opens in using the 32-bit version, but it's still it's it's not a native 64-bit component yet. Right, so and then those builds of uh, Firefox are now you can have a 64-bit version of Firefox, so that kind of compounds the problem. Yeah, the, the the software vendors, you know, they they make it hard as well as the hardware vendors, and which is it's a it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, I I've kind of been surprised that it's taken this long to adopt it. I mean, the story says that it took longer to make the jump from 16 to 32-bit. But considering there was even a 64-bit version of XP, I'm kind of surprised it's taken this many years just to get nearly half of installations to be 64-bit. That's because well, two years ago. I think, I think ago, a large part of that comes to is to you know look at the look at the computer manufacturers. I mean, you know, for how long did you know they were they were selling machines that you know they may be 64-bit capable, but they weren't shipping them with BIOSes that allowed you to do 64-bit or they were shipping the 64-bit systems with a 32-bit operating system and not really telling people that, hey, you can get 64-bit. Yeah. The biggest uh, enabler was two years ago when Microsoft required any uh, hardware certification um, you know, through, through their program if they wanted to get logoed, had to have a 64- and a 32-bit driver. And so that forced people to, uh, at least if they want to ship with OEM systems, which require the logo, that they would have to make a 64-bit for, uh, version of their driver. And I think that uh, helped flood the market with 64-bit uh, 64-bit drivers for uh, commercially available products. Now, I'm wondering, I know several months ago there was a lot of speculation, I think it was largely around a Microsoft job posting about whether or not Windows 8 would have 128-bit support. I'm wondering, can we... Do we really want that for Windows 8? There's no processors or anything that can support it. And people are just now making the move to 64-bit. Would a move to 128-bit be a little bit too soon? I think it's too soon. But uh, there's always niche, high-end supercomputing clusters that could definitely use uh, use that kind of address space um, if... if um, if you look at the price of RAM, the way it's plummeting, um, I can definitely see ultra supercomputers using that address space uh, in order to uh, run mul- massive computing programs. But um, for the mainstream and for the masses, no, I definitely don't see 128 needed. Yeah, and a lot of the so- a lot of software, there's just no use for 64-bit. That's why there's a lot of software anymore that still has no 64-bit version, because there's no real performance benefit for 
a lot of software to move there. So I I don't. Well, and even even Microsoft is you know where they've got a uh, 64-bit version of of Office 2010, but there's you know they they're even saying unless you're going to be working with large data sets in Excel, we don't even recommend you install the 64-bit version. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things where 64-bit kind of shines is when you're dealing with large amounts of data and stuff, like if you're running a database or something on your machine. But anyway, speaking of more Microsoft stuff, uh, and a number that kind of took me by surprise when I first saw it, apparently Xbox Live is now making more than a billion dollars a year, or at least in the last 12 months. Yeah, this is not surprising. Um, go you know, ahead, what's go ahead, what's interesting about that is you know you, you read the article, you know, four hundred million dollars out of that billion comes from you know in-game purchases and purchases of different things to to make avatars and stuff. So you know the the mar- the market is definitely there for little gimmicky things, at least in my opinion, stuff like that, that people are buying up like crazy. Yeah, I've never really understood the whole um, like downloadable content for games and stuff. I mean, I can understand it for like some map packs and stuff, but I've never understood why people would want to do it to like make their avatars look a little bit different or something. That That, that seems like a bit wasteful to me. Well, that's kind of like uh, the whole Farmville iPhone um, nine-nine cent song generation that we belong to is that uh, incremental small purchases are totally acceptable now. Um, so spending nine-nine cents here, fifty cents here, dollar uh, ninety-nine there, um, people don't blink anymore. Uh, they, there's no hesitation. So I think that's probably part of it too. That it's, it's the culture has developed that. Um, spending a little bit extra here and there is not that 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 big of a, a barrier. Yeah, I, I'm kind of. I would like to see a breakdown of just where eat where all the money comes from. I mean, yeah, they're saying around 600 million of it comes from Xbox Live subscriptions, which those are like what 50 bucks a year, unless you can get a deal where maybe it's like 40 bucks for a year or something like that, but. They also say, well, some of it's TV shows, movies, avatars, additional game content, stuff like that. I'd like to see a breakdown of each individual group to see where people are, what people are paying for. Yeah. It'd, it'd, be, still, it'd be interesting uh, to see, you know, how much of that is uh, people buying stuff for their avatar and, you know, the the, the little cheap dollar purchases. Yeah, I kind of... I would like to know what those are. I'm kind of curious to know how many people are buying um, movies and TV shows and stuff off there, especially when it's getting there's getting to be a lot of people that have Netflix subscriptions that are streaming stuff to their Xbox. I'm I'm kind of curious to know if the net the Netflix streaming is eating into those sales, and if so, by how much? Even more so when Hulu comes to the Xbox later on this year. Yeah, that'll, that'll definitely that would that would definitely be interesting. And how much is you know, now that you now that you kind of mentioned it with people with Netflix subscriptions, of how much is Microsoft actually making off of the TV shows 
that are being sold through Xbox Live. And is it, you know, does it, is it even, is it worth it to keep buying a show on Xbox Live or does it make more sense to get the cheapest Netflix subscription and just use the Xbox 360 as the device to stream the content through? Yeah, well, I, th- I think up until now, one of the biggest barriers that Microsoft has had is that they've never had the really large hard drives. Now they've got, with especially with the new systems, they've got the 250 gigabyte hard drive. But one of the problems for especially older systems like I have, which I now went out and bought a 250 gig drive and threw on it, but for me, I had I was one of the people that got the original Xbox. Pro Xbox 360 Pro versions that came with the 20 gigabyte hard drive, and that was very limiting when you're downloading um, movies, game demos, and stuff like that. Especially when they started doing games on demand, where you could download full games that you could suck up the whole 20 gigs in almost in like a day. Just realized I forgot to turn off the ringer on my phone. Oops. Good thing I good thing I caught it before it started ringing. But anyway, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what the growth looks like. Now I certainly understand why Sony is getting into the whole subscription thing with the PlayStation Plus, especially if Microsoft's making six hundred million dollars on that a year when Sony hasn't been making anything because they have no subscription service. Yeah. Well, they're trying to roll it out. Let's just say that, uh, it's hard to add something in that was free before. Um, and I think they see, they're seeing a lot of resentment because of that. Yeah. The things that they're offering with it, like free games and various different things of content seem to be, pretty nice and I would say almost worth it but I still don't think it's anything that I would subscribe to just because I rarely do anything over the PSN anyway that and I'm still stuck on the old firmware because I refuse to give up Linux You're you're probably one of the few that's sitting on the old firmware Yeah I'm kind of curious to know just how many people are still on the old firmware because they don't want to give up Linux there's been a number of times when I've thought, well, I wouldn't mind getting back on the PlayStation Network just so I could like rent a movie or something like that. That's like, no, I don't want to upgrade. Because one of the things I'm kind of afraid of is if I upgrade to the new version of the firmware, does it like repartition the whole drive as to where I can get that extra 10 gigs that I have dedicated to Linux back? Or... Does it basically just make it inaccessible as to where if I want to get that 10 gigs back, I'll have to back everything up, reformat the drive, and then put everything back on? That That's the one thing that scares me that I can't seem to find out any information about anywhere. From from what I've read, it sounds like it just, it, um, just gets rid of the option. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't actually touch the drive, but it's, it, you're right, it's it's not clear at all. Yeah, Sony doesn't do a great job of making things clear when they do any of their firmware upgrades. I've been paying way too much attention to their firmware upgrades for years anyway, just because I'm 
a big fan of the PSP homebrew scene, and most of the time they're really vague about stuff, especially like if there's if they're a lot of times they'll say, "Well, we upgraded the firmware because of security issues." They'll never say what it is, although pretty much everybody knows that 99% of the time, if they say security issues, it means that someone has found a hole in the firmware that they'll be able to run like ISO images or something like that, or some kind of a where they can install custom firmware or whatever, and it's not really a true security issue. It's just for the security of their device and the whole thing around piracy. Well, but. well it's, welcome to the no, it's like Apple. They they did the same thing. They'll release an update and they'll just say, "Oh, resolved an issue with the camera not working" or something like that. And it's totally not helpful because if you are having an issue, you can never tell, you know, what the issue is caused by and was it ever actually fixed. Yeah, that's one of the things that I like about, or in most cases about when Microsoft does updates, like when they do their monthly patches for security and everything, they put out all the information related to whatever the like security hole is or whatever the bug is that they're fixing. So that way you have an idea of what it's doing to your system and stuff. They seem to do a real good job of that compared to just about anybody else. Well, and they put it out ahead of time too, so you can know, you know, when the update's coming and what it's going to do. And if it's an update, you know, like Internet Explorer or a service pack, they often provide a tool for, you know, people to use that aren't don't quite want it yet that'll block the install for a certain amount of time, too. And, and Microsoft's become very, become very transparent in recent years about what its updates do and from a security perspective what they're fixing. Yeah, it used to be years ago that was the one thing I was concerned about. It's like, okay, I'm installing these updates, but is it going to break my system? What do these updates do? And now, at least with Microsoft, I don't have to worry about that too much. But with everywhere else, I kind of still have to worry about that. But speaking of updates in Microsoft, the Service Pack 1 beta for Windows 7 came out today for anybody who's interested in checking that out. I've actually been I've been um, running the beta now for I want to say I think I got it oh two weeks ago and I've got it running on um, even though you know everybody goes oh don't run it on a production machine I've got it running on my day to day laptop and haven't had any issues and it, it it doesn't add anything new it's just you know, all of the updates they've ever done since the release up until this point. Um, but if you're concerned, don't run it on a production machine. No. Always, and if you do, always have a backup. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had any issues with a like a service pack or a beta or anything, except for I think it was maybe when I installed, or at least the first time around when I installed Vista Service Pack One. I think that kind of caused a lot of issues for me. Otherwise, I've never even with beta stuff, I've never had much in the way of an issue with Microsoft stuff. They seem to wait until things are pretty stable before they even put it out. So I don't know if I would necessarily put it on my production machine, but it's something that I would still definitely try out. But anyway, next story. 
apparently Reddit is looking for users to donate to the site because I guess they don't have the money to fix their problems themselves. You know, what's, what's interesting about this is that, you know, Reddit isn't just out there on its own. I mean, it, it's, it's owned by Condé Nast, which owns, you know, magazines. I think, like, uh, I think Wired is one of the ones that they own, but they own a ton of magazines. So why are they even coming to people saying, you know, donate to us? I mean, are they just, the, are they the redheaded stepchild of the Condé Nast family? Well, I'm kind of wondering, apparently Condé Nast bought them back in 2006, and I guess their um, Reddit only has four engineers, I'm kind of wondering if it's kind of like a relationship similar to what, like, Amazon and Zappos have, where Amazon owns Zappos, but Zappos is almost completely independent, makes all their own decisions and everything else. I'm kind of wondering if that's kind of the same thing that's going on here, as to where Condé Nast really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Reddit, they just kind of own it. Yeah, but uh, they still have a responsibility for the company, and you can't, and um, it's 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 the it's the responsibility of management to be able to petition um, the people higher up, even if they have a separation relationship, to say, "Hey, we're 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 drowning and we need some help." So I, I think even if it is a separation, they do have some sort of um, they do have some sort of relationship with each other. And even though they might, as it as it stated in this article, even though they have separate budgets, they don't have separate interests, and the interest is to keep the company afloat. Well, and then and the the excuse that they, they use, you know, they they say that um, corporations aren't run like charities. They keep separate budgets for each business line and usually allocate resources proportionate to revenue. And Reddit's revenue isn't great. Well, okay, that that you know, I, I don't really buy that excuse. I mean, you know, if the revenue is not that great and you're not going to allocate resources because the revenue is not that great, but you want to keep the site going, you know, you're you're kind of in this in this vicious circle and um, if Condé Nast feels that there's value in Reddit, they should be providing resources necessary to fix the problems and to, even if they have to promote it or do what they need to do to bring the revenue that they want. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead. I I think they, I was surprised when they only had four engineers. I mean, when you look at their main competitor, which is dig, Dig's got all kinds of engineers. They're always working on new ways to scale. Their um, the new version of Dig is an alpha, when, which I really like. There's a couple of features here and there that I miss, but Reddit has pretty much stayed the same for I don't know how many years now. And you'd think that Condé Nast would realize that Reddit needs to keep up if they're going to remain relevant and work on some new business models other than whatever ads they're running. And if they actually put some effort into the company, they might be able to turn things around and make some real money off of it. I, I think what's happening here is that they're the, the reason why Reddit is showing their dirty laundry is because I think Connie Nass has already come to the conclusion that they don't want to fund this company. And they've probably come to that conclusion a long time ago. Um, how else would it make sense for them to say, hey, we, well, we have these many impressions, but we don't make that much money. Um, 
and we want you people to support us, it's because they've made bad management moves and it's come to this in which they have to petition their users. And the reason why we don't see even a statement from Condé Nast about this, uh, which it makes sense to um, for a parent company to at least comment on something like this because this is in the news, um, is because they've resigned themselves to let the company fail. Yeah, I've got a feeling, um, especially considering there's been downtime and stuff anyway, that Reddit probably won't be around a whole lot longer, even though it's one of the best ways to generate traffic that I've found. Well, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see, it'd be interesting to see too, you know, how many impressions Reddit's getting versus that of Dig and, you know, how many uniques each are getting and, you know, Reddit, Reddit's been stale for a while now, but Dig's continually innovating. So, you know, is that is that why more more people may be going to dig or and I think there's there's any numerous possibilities as to why Reddit could be failing, but I think it's like Wes Wesley said, you know, kind of nasty. Just they're they're seeing the handwriting on the wall that they're not getting the the visitors they want, and then they don't see any reason to invest in it. So they're turning it into you know kind of a a user supported thing where if users really want it, the users can support it and keep it going i think one of the problems that a lot of sites like this have is that when you have uh some kind of a news aggregate service like this that leans more towards the techie crowd you're going to end up with a real problem because a lot of these people are running things like firefox and they have these um whatever extensions like adblock plus for blocking ads so you really can't make much money on ads. That's one of the things I've been noticing for quite a while now with Global Geek News. I mean, well, the traffic is there, but everybody's running ad blockers, so I'm getting hardly any ad impressions, and I don't even know the last time I made even a penny on ads, just because everybody seems to be running these ad blockers now. Well, that goes back to innovation, like you were saying before, um, with Dig running out their new version. Uh, I think even in this story, they said they could sell custom um, web addresses for the site. Uh, someone can have an at reddit.com address. Um, there, there are many ways to make money on the internet, especially in, in this this time here. I mean, they could, they could branch out into reviews. They could branch out into podcasts. They could branch out into other things. Um, they, they just have not tried to engage their audience at a level until it's gotten to this point. Yeah, they, they've got to do something, otherwise Reddit's not going to be around a whole lot longer. Yeah, well, I, I assume that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that a lot of, that some people wouldn't, don't, that they don't want to be around a whole lot longer, apparently ISPs don't have to block the Pirate Bay no matter what the anti-piracy groups want. Yeah, this is a, a really good thing um, because the judge has decided that uh, it's overreaching for an ISP to block, uh, you know, block sites that that may be uh, have some unseething material. That that's overreaching. That's just way too much for an ISP to do deal with. Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised by this. I guess I didn't. I hadn't realized that the anti-piracy group in Belgium was trying to get the ISPs especially um, 
Belgacom and Telenet to block the Pirate Bay. So I, I don't think I've seen much in the way of any stories coming out out of Belgium about it, but there's a number of other countries that where the like IFP and stuff are doing whatever they can to try and get the ISPs to block the Pirate Bay. I'm kind of curious if this is going to have an effect anywhere else with other court cases in and around the EU. Um, seeing how we've had different three strikes rules uh, and restrictions of their, uh, I don't think that the EU sees eye to eye with uh, their member states. And I've, I'm hearing lots of rumblings about the EU possibly splitting up and whatnot. I don't know if that'll happen. Be interesting to watch if it did. But yeah, there doesn't seem to be. There seems to be a whole lot of um, turmoil in the EU to the point where there's no one unified vision of who should do what, and I think that's kind of a bit of a problem, at least as far as stuff like this goes. Well, the e- the EU does this weird thing where you know the the member states get to they they do their own thing and they do it, they do it one way. But then the European Union itself will set rules that'll totally be contradictory. So you have no idea, you know, what rules to go by and who's responsible for enforcing that rule. You know, is it is it up to the member state or is it, you know, uh, for the greater good, the EU needs to needs to enforce it. And on something you know like this, like this with the with this case with the Pirate Bay, you know you've got the different member states that have all done different things to get the either get the Pirate Bay offline, or you've got you know the Pirate Party that's actually actively working to gain seats in Parliament to pass favorable laws to keep the Pirate Bay in play. So you know it, it's it's kind of interesting to see this kind of this this tug of war of, of of power between the EU and its member states on issues like this. Well, it seems like just from what I've seen that no matter what laws the member states come up with, if whatever the EU say says goes for the most part, although at the same time, it looks like the, from what I've seen, the judicial systems for each member state are totally separate so that if a Supreme court in one country rules on something, they can there can be a completely different ruling in another country and because it's like a different country or whatever there's there can be totally separate things going on even though the EU still says hey we want it this particular way so it, it seems like they've got one screwed up system over there i yeah i'd i'd be inclined to agree well speaking of piracy apparently the Judge has finally decided that he's kind of had enough of the RIAA in the Joel Tannenbaum case and has ruled the $675,000 fine against Joel is unconstitutional and has reduced it by 90%. Yeah, this is back, I think, a few years ago, maybe even a year and a half ago, where the Supreme Court saying that um, you can't sue more than three times of actual damages. Um, anything above that is unconstitutional. And so this kind of falls in line with that, which he took the the minimum 
uh, fine for copyright infringement, infringement. Multiply that times three, and uh, that reduced the that reduced the burden on the plaintiff to uh, sorry on the the defendant to sixty seven thousand five hundred dollars, which is a far cry from um, you know the the six hundred seventy five thousand dollars that he was uh, uh, saddled with previously. Yeah, I think it was. I think I think it was either this case or it may have been another case too, where this same judge, um, in her ruling, you know, said that the fine that the fine was excessive, and you kind of used the example of um, restaurants and bars and clubs and things that are required to have um, a performance license to be able to play music but often don't, and when they get sued and hit with um, with fines, it's usually only anywhere from two and a half to four times what the cost of the license is, and the license isn't even even that expensive, and she used that kind of in, in kind of parallel in saying that these huge, you know, $675,000 fines are excessive as well. Yeah, I think that was, I'm sure that was the jammy, Thomas case, as memory serves, that 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 was the reasoning in that case. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of glad to see there's at least one judge that seems to be going along with this idea that this seems to be a little bit on the excessive side. I mean, if I got sued for all of the stuff that I willfully infringed, which I I think willful infringement that's what a hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars per willful infringement, isn't it? Something, something like that. It's, it's a it's a big number. Yeah, yeah. I can't even. I don't even want to speculate how much money I'd owe if that was the case. If they decided to take me to court, <laughs> yeah that that would be a very large number. But, yeah, you, you need to like have one of those. Insta burns in your computer before that happens. Yeah, I, I've always been meaning to put that on, but I never have gotten around to it. I, I want to have something where I can, it's on my desktop that I can just click it and it wipes the hard drive if I need to. Yeah. Or just get one of those uh, giant magnets. <laughs> yeah, that's like the kind to pick up cars and crush them. Those kind. Yeah. yeah, but now that I have a, that my main drive is a, not my not for all my storage and stuff, but now that one of my main drives is a solid state drive, I'm not sure how those how magnets have any effect on solid state drives. All right, that's a new blog article. Um, solid state drives are bad for privacy. Piracy. Hmm. Now I know what I'll be writing on. <laughs> but. You, you can you can do the research on that one, Jeremy, and, and let us all know if we should stick with our regular hard drives or. If SSDs are worth a move, you know, in terms of performance, I absolutely love my SSD, and if it wasn't for the high price of them, I would move all of my computers over to an SSD. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is now. I haven't checked it lately, but when I had a fresh install of Windows 7 on my computer, from the moment I hit the restart button to having a usable desktop, it was 20 seconds. And, wow. And compared to 
my last computer where it would act where it would take about fifteen minutes, I, I would say that's a considerable improvement. Oh yeah. Well the one thing what I love about them is put them in laptops, you get an incredible battery life. Yeah, I hear that you get a huge improvement. Them, yeah, I hear putting them in um laptops you get about a an extra ten percent battery life when you do that. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's some, something like that. I know it's it's got to be at least at least ten percent um, from what I from what I've seen. I think it, I think it depends on you know the the battery you're using to begin with and. Yeah, I'm I'm getting ready to. It looks like I'm going to get one of the new Alienware M11X. Um, I don't know if they technically call it an oversized netbook or a tiny laptop, but either way, I'm probably going to do, do that and get an SSD in it just for the extra battery life. I mean, the extra performance is nice too, but just having that extra battery life, especially when I go on trips to conferences, it, it makes a big difference. And not having to carry around a laptop plus a netbook and everything would be really nice too. Oh, but, yeah. But anyway, back to the whole peer-to-peer discussion. Apparently, after the whole thing last week where the judge decided that the U.S. copyright group or whatever it is out of D.C., that they could go ahead and file all these thousands of lawsuits at once, they turned the judge turned around and said, okay, but since Time Warner can only process 28 uh, request from you a month. That's exactly what you're going to give them at most is 28 requests a month instead of um, company or lawyer firm law firms like the U.S. Copyright Group dumping thousands of requests on them at once. Right, and that's total and not per case. Right, which which is uh, going to be it's a huge win for Time Warner. Um, that means that it's going to be less cost for them to support these efforts. But the question is. Um, and also leaves the door open for them to support you know, other law enforcement requests other than these civil lawsuits. Um, but uh, it's 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 a good victory for them. But um, of course, the industry is pissed that they said that this is aiding and abetting. Yeah, we covered this story. What was this a couple of months ago when it first started? And that Time Warner said that they could that on average from the U.S. Copyright Group or whatever. They only received 28 of these IP lookups a month, and that's what they could process because they still had to be able to process them from other intellectual property firms, um, local police and stuff, which, as far as they're concerned, those are the ones that take priority. And when they only have four people that are able to do the lookups, they didn't want to have to hire a whole bunch of new people just to be able to look up a thousand different IP addresses just for this one law firm. Well, and when you've got a case too, where I think it was, uh, I think I think it was the Hurt Locker, where the industry is wanting to go after each and every individual that downloaded a copy of the film. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot of people, and they they don't have you know the ISPs don't have the time to sit there for one group for one individual movie to go after all of these subscribers. 
And yeah, I, it, it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. Yeah, and Comcast is also kind of in this movement with Time Warner too. I don't think that they were that they put up the fight in terms of we can only handle this many a month. They were with Time Warner in terms of they shouldn't be filing several thousand requests at once. But as but when you're dealing with companies like Time Warner and Comcast, you're talking about millions of customers, many thousands of which are downloading this stuff illegally. And if they were to try and look up all of this stuff, it would cost Time Warner and Comcast and Quest and everybody else all kinds of money. Now, I think if like the U.S. copyright group paid for the employees to do the lookup and stuff, I don't think they would probably have as big of an issue. But if they're saying, hey, we want you to look up these thousands of addresses and you're, and by the way, you're fitting, footing the bill, I think that's kind of what has Time Warner and Comcast so irritated. Yeah, and it's and also this prevents them, if they were a smaller ISP, from being bankrupt from trying to support these efforts, which is something that's really, really good that uh, they're not allowing something like this to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I was kind of hoping that they would, that the judge would throw out the whole idea of them filing a couple thousand lawsuits all in one instead of of having them file each case individually, but apparently the judge isn't quite that nice. Right, but also not that nice as in not allowing them to separate the, the court cases too, so you win some, you lose some. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that this whole idea gets, this whole business model that the U.S. Copyright Group has gets thrown out, because having this is essentially a business model and their practice has been outlawed in a number of other countries just because basically this floods the judicial system and is essentially abusing it. So I'm kind of hoping that they make that stuff illegal here too, but I've got a feeling that with as many senators and stuff that the groups like the RIAA and stuff have in their pocket, that that's not going to happen. Oh, yeah. But the the conclusion of this case, whenever it finally is over with, is actually going to provide some good case law for cases like this going forward. Yeah, this is always interesting stuff to read up on. Whenever this stuff comes out, I'm it's like the second it hits, I'm reading everything I can about it from all kinds of different sources and everything. It, it's I just find this to be fascinating stuff. Yep. Lar- largely just because there's a lot of idiot judges out there. But anyway, speaking of more court-related things, apparently the court has decided, or some judge in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has kind of gutted the whole first sale doctrine. Yes. They're saying anything that is made overseas and has a U.S. copyright, um, the originating or the company that is uh, the owner of the copyright has uh, options on how that item is to be distributed uh, for the first and for the second sale. Um, and the, the, the first sale makes sense because they can choose who their partners are. The second sale, meaning that once a customer has it in their hand, uh, regulating who that goes to, that is something totally new and different, which we all know here that if you like 
any product, most of them say made in China, which means they're mostly manufactured in China, which means eBay will be out of business if this holds up. Yeah, this presents a lot of problems for eBay, Amazon, Netflix, GameStop, all kinds of different companies. Apparently this came about because somebody got an Omega watch, which was apparently... I guess he got it as like a gift for Christmas or whatever that apparently came from Costco. Well, I guess the Omega watch company didn't realize that their watches were being sold at Costco. They were selling it or they were selling the international distribution rights to some other company who was in turn selling the watches to Costco. Well, the Omega watch company sued Costco for selling it because that's essentially a second sale. Well, apparently the court, or the court, at least according to this judge, says that considering the fact that Omega was in another country or whatever, they are allowed to sue uh, Costco for selling these watches. Which, if you can't, if companies like Amazon, Netflix, eBay, GameStop, and stuff have to really patrol this kind of stuff, saying, okay, this was sold this came from another country with a copyright here or however it is if it's or if the copyright was in another country made in another country whatever we have to make sure that we have the specific distribution rights for this stuff otherwise they have to they have to worry about getting sued constantly from everybody so i'm hoping that this gets overturned by the supreme court really quickly yes or else i mean it's it's going to turn our whole commerce system on its ear yeah, I, I'm. I'm kind of. I'm apparently the Supreme Court's already looking at it, so hopefully this will get thrown out really quickly because this could create all kinds of problems for pretty much every company in existence, just about. Yes, and uh, if it hasn't already, I mean. This should put a lot of people on notice. Like, think about, um, you know, when the new iPhone came out and people were selling their old iPhones, that would kill that market. Um, uh, when um, someone has a garage sale, uh, it's 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 going to kill that. Um, all of these are, are in jeopardy if this new law uh, is stays in place. Yeah, this this I got a feeling that this may turn ugly really quick if something's not done about this. I I just can't believe that the judge interpreted it to mean that only stuff that is made and sold in the U.S. rather than everything. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I, I, I'm dumbfounded. Well, this is the same Ninth Circuit Court that has been known over the years to make some pretty boneheaded decisions on things. So, you know, it's, it's a surprising decision, but at the same time, it, it's not a surprising decision. You know, I, th- I think, I think we will see this, this get overturned really fast. You're saying it's not surprising as in you're numb to the kind of crap that comes out of this, <laughs> this, this, this court. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, the stuff that comes out of the Ninth Circuit, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm kind of numb to the stuff that, yeah, you know, they, 
they they pull. Well, and of course, this only applies for people that reside within the jurisdiction of the ninth district. So all the other places in the country, this doesn't necessarily take a effect. So hope, assuming companies like Amazon and whatnot are based in places that the Ninth Circuit doesn't cover, then hopefully they shouldn't have to worry too much about this, or at least not right away. Well, what might be what might be an interesting loophole in the Ninth Circuit is a lot of corporations, you know, um, while these companies may have their offices and stuff in California, they're actually corporations in places like Delaware and other states. So will it apply simply because their their physical offices are within um, the Ninth District, or will it apply, you know, or will it not apply because they're not technically corporations that are registered within the Ninth District, the Ninth Circuit, rather? Well, I don't think it matters because this case in Omega, I don't, I think it's because of where it was sold. So um, it's where it's sold, not necessarily where the corporation is located. Yeah, this has definitely just opened up one great big legal gray area for the most part. So I'm, I'm hoping they get things dealt with pretty quickly. But hopefully, they're hopefully the Supreme Court justices aren't spending too much time watching TV and playing video games so that they don't have any attention problems. Yeah, um, I, this is an article on Lifehacker saying that. Uh, more than two hours of daily TV show, video games, or uh, time could cause attention problems. Um, but the key word that needs to be stressed here is the word may. As in, uh, scientists have studied this and, and have determined that this is something that should be studied further in, in subsequent tests. Not saying that it could, it, it does, it's just saying it could, and so we should measure that in further tests to make sure that we're covering all the bases. Yeah, apparently they did this, their research with over 1,300 third, fourth, and fifth graders, plus over 200 college students. And supposedly, if you spend more than two hours playing a video game or watching TV, it can make you 1.6 times to 2.2 times more likely to have a greater than average attention problems. And I can't say that I've, or at least not that I've noticed that I've ever had any attention issues after watching more than two hours of TV or playing a game for more than two hours. I'm sorry, well, I wasn't paying attention. What were you saying? So I'm, uh, I've never had any. Oh, okay. I see <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Anyway, well, you, you know, here's 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 my here's my question. You know, if if you're sitting there playing a video game for more than two hours a day, or you're watching TV for more than two hours a day, if you're doing these in great stretches, you know, do you really have an attention span problem? I mean, if you're fo- if you're focusing in on video games and TV for multiple hours, and is there is it really a problem, or is yeah. it that we've just gotten so used to you know? TV and, and computers where things, you know, where things come up instantly and things are changing so fast that we just expect that everything in the real world is going to happen so fast. It's like a couple years ago when, when um, jury consultants and stuff found that there's this kind of CSI effect in the courtrooms where juries are expecting that 
they're going to get blown away with, you know, loads of forensic evidence in, an, in the period of, you know, a day, and they'll be able to make a quick, easy snap decision on a court case. Yeah, also, I mean, this points to people who, as you put it, are in, used to being in control. With TV, they have a remote. With video games, they're interacting. Um, maybe they have less patience, a.k.a. attention, uh, for people who, uh, for, for being participating in class or school or something in which they're not in control. Maybe that's just uh, more of what they're used to and not necessarily that it's a problem. More, they could be drawn more towards being in control than to not being in control. So, also, the study, this is studying people who do these activities. These don't study people who don't do these activities, then force them to do these activities and see if there's a delta between their attention span, which I, I think is, is part of the problem with this study, and that's, that's why they say they, 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 they need to do more, uh, more tests. I don't, I don't almost be interested in being a part of a study like this myself, just because I tend to be a little bit different than a lot of people as far as if I'm watching something for two hours, which is extremely rare, maybe it's a movie or something like that, I'm usually doing like half dozen other different things at the same time. My main focus may be on whatever movie I'm watching, but at the same time, I'm usually surfing the web, checking TweetDeck, checking Google Reader, checking my email, doing all kinds of stuff. I'm My primary focus is on one thing, but at the same time, I'm still doing all of these background tasks. It's not a case of after I finish doing one thing, then I have, then I'm trying to do a million different things. I'm just trying to do everything at once the first time around. Right. Yeah. Big question mark on this, but that's what they're saying basically. Is it just? Well, speaking of big question marks, apparently there's a rumor going around that Twitter may let users pay to promote their own tweets. Yeah. This is something we don't need more of. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. I just going horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I, there, I'm sure there'd probably be a revolt at some point of people going, "Hey, I spent hours and hours picking out. Okay, I want to follow this person, this person, and this person. Now all of a sudden, all these other people are showing up because they decided to spend how much of our money and have me see their tweet." I've got a feeling that that would probably lead to some kind of a great big revolt. And I'm kind of curious to know just how much something like a promoted tweet would cost. I mean, I would assume it's got to be on some kind of a CPM basis. So I'm kind of curious to know what the pricing would be if it was like a $20 CPM or something like that or just how that would work. Yeah, this isn't announced. This is just rumor. And... um... My guess is that um, it's going to be seen as a douchey move for anyone who does this, um, and it will have the opposite opposite effect. Um, and plus, how would you charge for something like this um, on an individual basis? Uh, is it based on results? Um, uh, is it? I mean, it would be it would be a, an accounting nightmare for them, being overwhelmed with something like this. I. I, I I think it's a bad idea, and I think there's better ways to make money if, if, if I were Twitter. Yeah, well, I, I would think that, and yeah, it would certainly be a nightmare to try and implement, but I would think it's got to be on a CPM basis, because if, if you tried to do a cost per click, that's going to really cause issues, because 
you've got the tweets that there's supposedly they're they're going to have a way that of course this is all supposedly being discussed internally according to all things digital but supposedly they've found a way to make it as to where they could do something like this on twitter.com as well as make it already work with all the third party apps like TweetDeck or Seismic or whatever trying to figure out clicks on third party apps would be just about impossible Unless, of course, the third-party developers would say, hey, we'll implement a way for you to track clicks, but we want a cut of the what you make. Yeah, but no. <laughs> they're, they're screwing up the system of how people use Twitter if they do something like that. Um, and <laughs> Yeah. Can I just say that I'm absolutely shocked that Twitter seemed to stay up during the World Cup yesterday? Did anybody notice that? You know, well, that's, that's one true. game. <laughs> <laughs> well, considering all the downtime it had during like the quarterfinals and everything, I was amazed that it didn't. That I never saw one fail whale at all during the whole game. Well, that's because there are less teams competing, so. All the people from South Africa, they stopped tweeting. All the people from, from Uruguay, they stopped tweeting. <laughs> yeah, but I... And, and Twitter also said, you know, after these various downtimes, that they were doing things to, you know, imp- in, increase capacity and to improve reliability. Well, I'm kind of curious how much overhead they're going to end up with after all of the changes that they've done, because... Yeah, they made it as to where they could um, be able to stay up during the World Cup, but now you don't have a great big huge event like the World Cup until probably like the Super Bowl or something like that. So in the meantime, you've got all this extra overhead that you don't really need. You don't need all the extra servers and stuff that it took to handle something like the World Cup. So I'm kind of curious to know how much money they've wasted by doing all these upgrades that they've done or if they're using some kind of a system that they can easily scale like an Azure or something which I'm sure they're not using Azure but something like maybe they have their own version of that or something probably not so is, it, is, um, is this overhead or I mean is this you know is this you know, finally some good planning on their on their part I mean I think I remember seeing somewhere a couple of weeks ago they were saying that um, in doing some research, they've found that you know, they're getting an average. I think they're getting something like 750 or 800 tweets um, a second. Um, I mean, while it may sound like a small number, I mean, if you, you know, take that into minutes and hours and stuff, you know, it, it it ends up being a lot. And then combine that with how large their user base is. I mean. It might it might finally be a good thing that they've got all this extra capacity now. I would hope so, just for any future issues to where maybe they don't have to completely disable features or completely take all of Twitter down for X number of hours while they try and get the timeline to sync back up or whatever. I'm hoping that maybe the extra capacity will keep things like that from happening, but knowing Twitter, I've got a feeling that those are still going to kind of be the norm for quite a while longer. Well, yeah, and they've, well, I mean, and they've still, got all these growing. different... 
Yeah, they're they're growing, and it seems like you know during, when to help capacity, they had to turn off you know different different features and stuff. You know, like lists or you know the um, you know whatever else they were turning off, which should they they shouldn't have to. So maybe you know this this may finally you know be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. There comes a point where I think you can, where almost no matter the system, or at least unless you are planning on an absolutely massive scale to begin with, your anything that you do now is going to cause problems down the road, and any features that you have are going to cause a lot of problems in terms of growth as to where you're not going to be able to add the features that you want to in the future. That's one of the problems that Kevin Rose was talking about that they were having with Dig, was with the current version of Dig, they were they kind of maxed out what they were able to do with their current system. That's part of the reason behind the whole rewrite for the new version of Dig, is because they weren't able to do anything more with the current system because it was already at its limits of what it could handle in terms of features and stuff. So this is one of those things where you almost kind of have to plan out years in advance, and there's no real way of knowing what your traffic is going to be like two years from now. Yeah, that's how they, that's why they had to use Cassandra. Uh, dig, dig. And uh, um, I, I wonder... It, it, it also amazes me during the World Cup of how they said, oh, we noticed that we had some misconfigured routers or, the, or we had a huge uh, uh, fault um, that caused it to go down when it went down during the World Cup that they just didn't even understand the capacities of their routers at the time. So that means that they're not even monitoring it appropriately and hopefully um, they can't... It seems that they've been keeping Twitter up patch by patchwork instead of actually planning. Um, so hopefully they'll do the hard work of sitting down and saying, okay, let's re-architect this whole thing. Yeah, I, I think that's oh. certainly something they need to do, especially now that they've actually got all the hundreds of million, over $100 million in venture funding to be able to do that. But anyway, speaking of what people are might be doing on their phones. Not only are they using Twitter on their phones, but according to the latest um, Pew Internet and American Life project, apparently people this year are doing all kinds of other things more than they were doing on their phones last year, including taking pictures, um, text messaging, playing games, email, accessing the Internet, playing music, and receiving instant messages. And the figure that really surprised me was the huge jump recording video took for cell phone usage. Yeah, right. Um, of course, they point out uh, that there's a huge duh in this article is that um, a lot of phones didn't have this capability before, and now they do. Yeah, especially with like the more Android handsets that are getting out there, the newer iPhone stuff that's getting out there, that it makes a lot of sense that people are going to be recording more videos, playing more games and stuff. But at the same time, I don't know too many people other than maybe like video bloggers or something like that that are really doing a whole lot with video on their phones. I know a lot of people that take pictures on their phones, but I don't really know anybody that's doing a whole lot in terms of video on their phones. I'm kind of surprised that there's actually 34% of cell phone users that now record videos on their phones. 
Well, I think there's a I think there's a lot of people. I mean, especially in kind of the in the younger age groups that you know are are recording videos of different things. You've got you know parents with with really young kids that that might be out and about, and they see their kid doing something, so they they whip out the phone real quick to record something. Um, I know I noticed while I was over in Europe that there were a lot of people. They would whip out that they'd whip out their phones and uh, they'd be recording things. I mean, there was in the lobby of our hotel there was a piano, and you could almost bet that if enough of the um, enough of the kids were there, that you know one of them would be on the piano playing something, and there everybody else would be crowding around with their cell phones, you know, either taking pictures or recording video of the, of other kids playing the piano and sending it up to Facebook or, or, you know, the people that had iPhone 4s were standing there editing video, too. So. Yeah, see, if it was me, I'd probably just be there with my flip camera and doing the recording and then taking it back and editing it later and stuff. But I'm kind of surprised that with as many people that are now using their phones and stuff for video that the kin didn't catch on at least mm-hmm. a little bit better than what it did, especially considering the... Um, like the 720p video recording capabilities was one of the big features of the kin. Did you get? Yeah, that? I think it's less of features and more of it's there already kind of a thing. People, I don't think people are buying phones for the the option of being able to record uh, video or, or take movies necessarily, but they might say, "Oh, I have this feature. Let me go ahead and use it." Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, did you? Notice many, if any, kins at all in Warsaw? I did not see a single kin. But then again, the the, the kin uses uh, CDMA, whereas, you know, the, the rest of the civilized world is using GSM. Um, so I did, I, did, I did not see a single kin. Um, I didn't run into anybody at Microsoft, from Microsoft that was there, that had even seen a kin up close and personal. Um, I'm sure there were a few. I probably just didn't run into them. Uh, ran, in, ran into more people that had, you know, the buzz was all Windows Phone 7. Yeah, that's more what I want. What I'm kind of waiting for is the Windows Phone 7. I'm really hoping they come out with one relatively soon for Sprint's Nextel network with the Direct Connect, because that's kind of what I need for work, because last week my BlackBerry contract contract expired, and I really don't want to get locked into anything else for another two years if something like that might be in the works. But, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that there seems to be nobody that is seems to be even interested in Akin before it got killed or anything like that, despite seeing advertisements for it everywhere. I'm still shocked at how few units it sold compared to the marketing effort that was behind it. Well, I, I, you know, I, in there, there was some marketing effort. I think, I think there was a, there was a lack of collaboration, I think between Microsoft and Verizon, who was the carrier here for the kin. Um, I went, you know, I went to the, the local Microsoft store, um, which Arizona had the first one, um, you know, and in talking to, they, they had them sitting there on a table. They had the nice display, 
But if you, you know, trying to talk to the retail staff and ask them about, you know, what pricing was for plans, um, they were like, oh, we don't know. And one thing that a bunch of people kept asking was, does Verizon have these in their store yet? Did they, you know, because there's a Verizon store down, you know, in the mall. And it was like, I don't know, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't you guys supposed to be, you know, aren't you guys supposed to collaborate on these things? And just kind of from what I've heard, the experience of buying the kin in the store and getting it set up with the rate plan and stuff, just it, it wasn't a great experience. Well, the main reason I didn't want one, I mean, it looked like it would be interesting, but I just don't like the physical form factor of the device. It just didn't look like it would be something that was comfortable to hold. The Kin One definitely not. I mean, the the Kin Two is you know is is like a lot of um, a lot of the early smartphones that have been that were out there. I mean, it looks you know it looks like something that HTC produced a few years ago uh, for T-Mobile. I mean, it looks like I think um, I think it's like the T-Mobile Wing is is what the Kin Two kind of reminds me of. Yeah, especially the Kin One. It, it just doesn't look like something I would really want to hold and use, and it, it just didn't look like something that would be very convenient. And it looked like, from the pictures and stuff I've seen, it just made it look tiny. And I don't know how much I'd really want to do on a tiny screen like that. Yeah, one of the things one of my friends said about the Kin One is that it was, you know, it'd be like holding a hockey puck to your ear. Yeah, you probably look kind of talking to a hockey puck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm. I'm. To an extent, I'm kind of glad to see that it's gone, just because it didn't look like anything that would ever really catch on in the first place. But I don't know. Maybe one day I'll get one just to say that I have a kin. To be one of the handful of people that can actually say that. But anyway. That would be all of our stories for this week. We are running very late compared to usual, but that's all right. We still have our tips of the week, which, of course, you can also find those at globalgeeknews.com. Starting with, you can now claim your $16 Comcast peer-to-peer settlement. The settlement is now final, so... If you happen to be a Comcast customer that used any kind of peer-to-peer technology, whether it's BitTorrent, eDocky, FastTrack, or Nutella, between April 1st, 2006 and December 31st, 2008, you are eligible for $16, which seems to be at a horrible settlement, considering the fact that you probably paid 50 bucks a month for every month in that time period, but I guess it's $16 you didn't have in the first place. But I'm sure But there's paperwork and stuff for you to file your claim and everything. If you, if you happen to be one of those people, and of course your peer-to-peer use can't be for illegal purposes. It has to be strictly for legal things like Linux ISOs. Not that most of the people that are going to get it will, will actually it would admit to downloading illegal stuff anyway, but that's what it's supposed to be for. That's what you're signing affidavits and stuff for. But um, you wouldn't be alone if you would go for it and you downloaded stuff illegally. Next, 
tip of the week would be the beginner's guide to overclocking your Intel processor. Um, for those that are interested in doing some eking out as much performance as you can out of your computer, there's a nice little kind of beginner's guide for overclocking your computer. Something that I've done for many years. I'm not doing it with my current system just because it's so insanely fast I don't need to. But if you're looking to eke out a little bit more performance before spending all kinds of money on a new computer, this is certainly one guide worth checking out. Next is 10 Essential iOS Travel Apps. If you're doing a lot of traveling, there's some nice little apps that are good to check out. This comes from Reg Hardware, which the registers hardware site. So everything on here is price-wise is in pounds, but you should still be able to get a pretty good idea of what it is in dollars and cents. But there's all kinds of stuff from like augmented browsers, finding hotels, Yelp for restaurant reviews. All, there's five pages of ten different apps worth checking out, especially if you are someone who's on the go a lot. Huh, hang on one second. Get me a drink here. Next is how to access Hulu from outside the U.S. without a proxy server. This is something I didn't even realize was possible. But apparently, if you're using Firefox, if you have a certain extension that allows you to modify headers and whatnot, you can do a little bit of hacking and you can still be able to watch things like Hulu and stuff outside of the U.S., which would be nice, especially if you're traveling abroad and whatnot. Apparently, they say to make sure to turn this bit of a hack off if you're browsing other sites as it could possibly create some issues. And finally, how to add an extra free disc to your Netflix queue. Apparently, if you add less popular DVDs as to where their DVDs aren't available in all of their warehouses, you can potentially get an extra DVD sent to you just by um, getting one of these DVDs, because since it's going to take, there's going to be a short wait instead of getting it the next day, they're going to ship it a couple of days beforehand, and you'll end up with an extra DVD. So, I guess if you're one to watch, like, documentaries and stuff, where this could, which is where this is more likely to happen, this is probably a good thing for you. And I believe that is all for this week. Of course, you can find all that stuff at globalgeeknews.com, where you can also find the links to our store to buy Global Geek News merchandise, where to fan us on Facebook, and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at Global Geek News. I am at PCNerd37. Wesley is at Wesley83. And Tom is at T Ziegman. Is that right? Yep. Okay, yep. so Ziegman with two N's. I kind of screwed up at first when I was making out all the show notes and everything because I originally put one in and realized it was two ends. So something to keep in mind if you're looking to find Tom on Twitter, and I believe I linked his Twitter and as well as his website, Tom on Tech, in the show notes, which is that where you've 
done all your blogging and stuff for the Imagine Cup stuff? Is it yep. Tom on Tech? Yep, and there's yep, there's a couple other articles that'll be going up soon. Um, had an issue with uh, Windows Live Writer over the weekend, so I've had to kind of rewrite a couple of the stories. Uh, but those should hopefully be up by the end of the week. Um, so check out the website, and there'll be more information there. And as uh, more details of next year's Imagine Cup are announced, I'll be posting those as well. Yeah, looking forward to it. I can't say that I've ever really used Live Writer, just because there's some WordPress plugins that I kind of depend upon, so it makes it a store I can't really use it. So I, and I like the WordPress interface anyway. So that's just kind of what I stick to. But yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Tom. It was great to have you on. Yeah, thanks, oh, Tom. Not a problem. It was great. Loved it. Yeah, I have to get you on again here real soon. This is definitely made for some great conversation tonight. But anyway, that is all we have for this week, so we will see you guys next week when hopefully we'll have yet another special guest. So for episode 73 of the Global Geek News podcast, we will that's it. We will see you guys next week. Later. Later. Bye.